Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me today are Robert Stone, who is the producer of a wonderful new documentary, which will air on PBS in July, and General Charles Duke, who will be with us later on the telephone from his home in Texas. And we're going to be talking about Chasing the Moon, which is the name of Robert Stone's documentary, but it's the whole American space program, pre-Sputnik till the 1970s. So, Robert, welcome to the journal. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I have previewed the segments, one, two, and three, and I was blown away. I mean, it's, it's different from the other documentaries that I've seen in the last 10 years. Why did you choose this format? There are no talking heads. Thank no. you. There are no talking <laughs> heads. No. Well, you know, I've seen other space documentaries and I always felt you know you, you some you, so there there are all these always these moments where you get lost in the magic you're up in space you're in orbit and then and and you're 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 kind of emotionally involved in the scene and then you kind of get you go to you know an 80 year old man in his living room <laughs> and it just this seesaw back and forth between the present and the past I felt you know took me out of the space I wanted to be so I knew from the very beginning there was so much there was so much archival footage to work with, and I really wanted this to be a timeless story that would you know last. The, the, hopefully, people can watch this film if you know fifty or hundred years from now, and it's not going to play any differently. Uh, so you see everybody when they're young in the prime of their lives doing the most exciting work, and it's not this. Uh, it's you're totally immersed in the moment, and 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 the story evolves using a lot of contemporaneous news accounts. So it, 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 it evolves uh, as it's happening. How, I mean, we all know how it turns out, but as the, as the film's running, you get, you, you, because we're totally immersed in the moment, you get the sense of, you know, this could, this could go in any way, which was the reality of it at the time. It was, no, it was not a foregone conclusion that this would ever succeed. All right, Robert, as a historian, you mentioned the archival footage mm -hmm. and... I've seen films before, I've seen clips before, but whether it's the German archives or American archives, they're things that are probably going to be seen for the first time in 50 years. And this stuff that's never before been seen. Yeah, we found, look, a lot of the, there's so much NASA footage that that's become sort of the go-to place for most films about the space program. And we really, because PBS gave me the time and the resources to uh, really dig deep. You know, we went into, I think we sourced um, for the series about a hundred different archives. Wow. Um, uh, so we really dug deep into collections that have never really been looked at before. Uh, the, 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 and, and some of the best stuff we got was from the television networks where they had st things that they shot, but they never broadcast, just stuff sitting in their vaults, and nobody had ever looked at this stuff since it was shot in the 1960s. And some of that stuff's just incredible. Well, was there a space program before Sputnik? Well, uh, not a space program, because we weren't sending any... The Sputnik was the first human object uh, into space. So there was, there was dreams of space. There was... Uh, there was uh, uh, Werner von Braun, who was the uh, German uh, rocket engineer who'd worked under Hitler and developed the first V-2 rockets that struck London and Antwerp at the end of World War II. He came over to the United States after the war and was developing uh, missiles for the army. So rockets were being used and developed to for military purposes. And... Von Braun was very always had always been interested in in possibly you know going into space, going to the moon, going to Mars. He thought that rocket technology was capable of doing this, and he really was at the forefront of. He was very charismatic and very well spoken, and he was at the forefront of publicizing this idea that human space travel is not something in the realm of science fiction; that it can actually happen. With this actually going to happen in our lifetime. So when Sputnik came along, he saw an opportunity to uh, uh, further publicize this idea and maybe sort of maybe bring it into reality. Von Braun launched America's first uh, satellite into orbit a few months after Sputnik and later was a, a very influential in selling uh, President Kennedy on the idea of going to the moon. Remind us, when was Sputnik 
56, 57? October of 1957. And then we, we tried something shortly thereafter because I can remember they got everybody in my school and the gym and they had a black and white TV and we, we watched the American rocket get about 10 feet off the ground and then blow up. Yes. So the, the, the Russians launched the first uh, satellite, which just went beep, beep, beep all over the world. And about a month later, they launched a dog into orbit, which was, you know, scared everybody. Like, well, not only did this prove that the Russians had a missile that was capable of hitting the United States with a nuclear weapon, it also seemed to indicate that the Russians had plans to send a human being into orbit, which was like so beyond anything America was capable of. There was a real sense, you know, America, after World War II, we, we thought we were the dominant world technological power. And here comes this upstart nation that we sort of frowned upon, making us uh, look like a second-rate power. And so there was a real panic in this country that we'd fallen behind. And so, yes, you're right, it was a great fanfare. Uh, about a month after that, the, after the dog in space, the Americans launched uh, the first their first satellite, uh, Vanguard, which spectacularly blew up on the launch pad. Uh, this just sent uh, Americans into a tizzy about this whole thing. And von Braun, about in, in uh, January 1958, emerged as a great hero when he um, successfully launched the Explorer 1 satellite. And that put America, uh, well, put America into space. And, and uh, you know, the race was on from there. Well, and the 1960 election, space was an issue. It was an issue, but it wasn't. It, interestingly, Kennedy did not really, he didn't really show a great interest in space. He wasn't, it wasn't a, a big thing on his agenda. What what he was saying is that the 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 Soviet achievements in space was a uh, an indication that America was falling behind. And he wanted to, um, in his, his race against Vice President uh, Richard Nixon, he was representing himself as the champion of the future and leading America back to technological dominance. So what happened was about four months into Kennedy's presidency, uh, the Soviets launched the first man into space. Yuri Gagarin became the first man into space, and he orbited the Earth one time. In the, it was really right after that that Kennedy said, look, we've got to do something to, to catch up. This is intolerable. And von Braun suggested, look, we cannot beat them at their own game. They've got bigger rockets than we do. They're, much, they're further ahead than we are. Uh, we're just going to stay behind if we keep trying to launch satellites or launch people into orbit. They're just way ahead of us. So let's change the rules of the game. Let's move the goalpost to the moon. Because if we say let's race to the moon, both the Soviets and the United States are both going to have to build entirely new rockets and entirely new systems. And von Braun was confident that with the, the financial support of the American government, American people, that um, he would be able to meet that challenge and uh, build a rocket and build a system that would get us to the moon ahead of the Russians. And, and he was right. We did. All right. We need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And right now I'm talking with Robert Stone about his documentary, Chasing the Moon. And we'll also add General Charles Duke. Robert, so Kennedy did make going to the moon a goal. He announced that, right? Yes. In, in uh, uh, May of 1961, he made a, gave a speech to Congress um, proposing that we put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, before this decade is out, as he famously said. Although right away, he had, he was having misgivings about it, um, uh, about the expense. He was a, he was a, f a fiscally conservative president, uh, and he was very keen to balance the budget. And he knew that the costs were just going to spiral out of control on this thing. Um, he was weary of it, you know. He and we have a recording in in the film of, of uh, the secret White House recording in the Oval Office, where he said that you know, saying that he doesn't really have an interest in space. He he just feels that we need to do this because we've got to we've got to beat the Russians. So he saw it through the prism of a of the Cold War entirely. Interestingly, about a month after giving this speech, he goes to Vienna to meet with Soviet Premier Khrushchev and proposes to do a joint mission with the Soviet Union to the moon. 
And uh, Khrushchev is enticed by this because he too is appalled at the cost of racing the Americans to the moon, but de but declines and says, you know, no, I don't want to do this. And Khrushchev was afraid that if they collaborated, that the Americans would find out that the uh, uh, Soviet Union was technologically not nearly as sophisticated as they were purported to be and had very few ICBMs and really were not a military threat in terms of intercontinental ballistic missiles um, were not a threat to the United States as, as the United States perceived them. So he said, no, I don't want to cooperate because they want to keep everything secret. One of the great stories we have in the film, which is uh, one of the people I interviewed was Sergei Khrushchev, who was Nikita Khrushchev, Premier Khrushchev's son, who was by his father's side throughout the space race and was himself a leading Soviet rocket engineer. And he tells a story of how Towards the end of Kennedy's presidency in, in the fall of 1963, uh, Kennedy um, reiterated this offer to Khrushchev. And at that point, you know, time, things had changed. The Soviet Union had developed more military parity with the United States. And uh, in about a month before um, President Kennedy was assassinated through some back-channel negotiations, Khrushchev agreed to do a joint mission uh, to the moon, which... Uh, it didn't come to pass. Kennedy was killed. Khrushchev was overthrown in October 1964. But it's a, it's an incredible what if, what might have been. We would be remembering this anniversary in a very different way if it had come about. Wasn't one of the ways to get the funding for the space program was, was through Congress, that you got influential congressmen interested. And you look where most of the early space operations or rocket operations bases there in the South, Huntsville, Alabama, Houston, Texas, Cape Canaveral, Florida. Congressmen love to have those kind of places in their congressional districts. No, that's absolutely right. And that's a story that we, we tell as well. It's been sort of largely forgotten as, you know, as, as much as the space race was a technological challenge, it was an equally complicated political and public relations challenge to sustain this effort, this goal, uh, over the better part of a decade through multiple administrations. And, and many of the people who were brought in to run NASA, most uh, specifically uh, Jim Webb, who was the head of NASA during this period, he the, uh, they, these guys came up with Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, and they saw how Roosevelt was able to um, sustain and gain, gain public support for the New Deal by having a little bit of, you know, something for everybody in every congressional district. And the, the, so, the, so the political machinations about how you pull off something as bold as an, an audacious as, as this is fascinating and I think has a lot of lessons for today if, if, if we're going to do something similarly bold. You can't just get up on a soapbox and say, we're going to do this and that and then not do the follow through. And it's the follow through that's the hard work. Mm -hmm. And spreading the money around to congressional districts, mm -hmm. to con congressmen who have positions on the appropriations committees and stuff like that. That's how you get things done in Washington. Well, for example, the cloth or the material for the spacesuits was manufactured at a very small mill in Davidson, North Carolina. I mean, that wasn't all they did, but in Congressman Jonas's district, that was his part of the space program. Mm -hmm. Well, the 400,000 people worked uh, on the space program around the country, which is uh, extraordinary. And I, I run into people all the time who say, oh, my uncle, my father, my grandfather did that. You know, it could be the most tiny little thing. And, and, and uh, you know, manufacturing a bolt that went into the lunar module or something. And, and it was the thing they're most proud of in their lives is that they participated in some small way. Even a guy who was like mowing the lawn, you know, at the space center in Houston felt that he was a part of something bigger and, and helping us get to the moon. And that was a great, it's one of the great things about the program is it really made everybody feel that they were a part of something bigger than themselves. All right, the first challenge that Von Braun had to deal with was to produce a rocket large enough and powerful enough to go intercontinental, right? Well, not intercontinental, it had to leave the orbit of the Earth, which is a huge, you know, gravity well, and to break out of that, going 25,000 miles an hour, that's what you need to do to break out of Earth orbit and, and go to the moon and come back and land. It was incredibly complicated. When Kennedy uh, set that challenge in 1961, nobody knew how to do it. There wasn't really a plan in place to, to, to put a man on the moon. 
it kind of had to be figured out. And there were there were multiple approaches. You know, you could build a giant rocket. There were you know talk of maybe doing a nuclear rocket that would just go straight to the moon and land on the moon and come back, kind of like what you saw in the old 1950s you know sci-fi movies. And or there was another plan that they were going to um, assemble a big rocket in, in Earth orbit and then at a space station. There was these, you know, circular space stations with artificial gravity like you see in 2001. That, that was a plan. Then they go to the moon from there. And then eventually they settled on what was called uh, uh, lunar orbit rendezvous, which was to to send a rocket to the moon with two spaceships uh, and the little, the, so the, 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 the little spacecraft uh, that would land on the moon was a separate separate unit, and that would land on the moon, and then there would be two stages of that. The upper stage would go back, rendezvous in lunar orbit with the command module, and then that would be discarded, and then they would return to Earth. It was incredibly complicated, because nobody at that time even knew if you could link up two spaceships in orbit or in space. Like, that had never been done before. Um, all these little things had to be tested out and tried. So there were tremendous technical challenges faced by Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, the various uh, missions. The rocket was the first one, and Russia had joined in a race to the moon, and there were tragedies in both countries as we went forward in this race. Yeah, the Russians, you know, the, the Russians, Khrushchev, when he was in power, was not racing to the moon. Uh, it was a bluff. Uh, he liked to let the Americans think he was racing to the moon, but they were just trying to pull off one propaganda stunt after another, and they were very successful at it. They, they, the, the shortly after um, Yuri Gagarin went up doing a singular orbit, uh, they sent up another cosmonaut named German Titov who did 17 orbits, which was the equivalent of going to the moon and back in terms of distance. They sent up the first woman in space. They sent the first multiple crew in space. They sent the first multiple, you know, two spaceships together uh, in orbit. And all of these things gained huge international attention, but they weren't really a kind of thought-out, step-by-step program to solve the problems that were necessary to go to the moon. And it was only um, it was after Khrushchev was overthrown, uh, Leonid Brezhnev came in, and he went ahead and said, "Okay, I'll give you anything you want. Let's just let's spend money, and um, we'll try to beat the Americans to the moon." And their their project, they built they built a, a rocket as big and as powerful as the Saturn V, but they uh, von Braun was. The reason it's called the Saturn V is it has five big engines in the in the in the, the the first stage. The Russians were never able to build engines that big, so they had thirty engines in their first stage, which had to fire simultaneously in perfect synchronicity, and and to lift this thing up into space. And they never were able to work it, uh, get it going, and it blew up spectacularly on the launch pad, um, or shortly after launch. Um, about a, a, a week or two before Apollo 11 launched to the moon. And that was basically the end of the Soviet space program, uh, a lunar program. But they, they denied all of that was secret, and they denied that they even had a lunar program. Much of that information didn't even get released until the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. All right, we had our first successful lunar landing in 1969, but that wasn't uh, the end of it. We had planned 20 missions, but... Even after the first one was successful, we did it, and then people kind of said, oops, okay, we've done that. The interest waned. Well, sure. I mean, who, do, do, do you know the second man who climbed Mount Everest? <laughs> I mean, this is what happens. It, it, it was such an incredible thing to do it for the first time, to leave the planet that we were born on and go to another world for the first time and land on another world and to have that transmitted on live television all over the world because as this was all being developed, we were also developing a global television, a global communications network with orbiting satellites, uh, made this a unique moment in human history where the entire world was united as one. We felt a sort of common humanity that it was really one of us up there and it, I, there was a, it was a, an event that 
is singular. It never happened before. I doubt anything similar to that will happen again. Even if we landed on Mars, it's that's not the first time we've left the Earth and gone to another world. So it was a unique. It was a unique moment in human history. Maybe the one thing we'll be remembered for, you know, a hundred thousand years from now, is that this was uh, this was a real turning point. And it's really that feeling that I really wanted to capture. I, I think you know, there's been a lot of movies about the astronaut experience, and I wanted to really focus on the human experience and how we, how this resonated here on Earth, because I think that was really the main event. Was, was how it impacted us and expanded our worldview and gave us this sense of optimism and accomplishment and optimism about the future, which unfortunately has been lost for a lot of young people now. I, I, you know, they think the future is not going to be as good as the present or the past. And it's certainly at that time, the space program sort of symbolized a very optimistic and positive and hopeful future. Robert, you talk about optimism and the impact on the general public. In the recruitment of astronauts in one of the later groups, not the first group, was a young African-American, Ed Dwight. And with great fanfare, he was selected. He became something of a national celebrity. But then he got dropped from the program. Yes. Well, um, the Kennedy administration, as I said, viewed the space race as an effort to present the United States as the leading technological society where the wave of the future, you know, it's really to tell the rest of the world who is deciding, are, are, are we going to go with the, the Soviets? Are we going to go with their sort of system of government? Or are we going to go with liberal democracies in the West? And so Kennedy saw the space program as an effort to influence the rest of the world saying the future is with us we're leading the world into the into this new world in the future and that's what the space program represented and and part of that uh as part of that effort the kennedy administration decided it would be a great thing to put an african-american as part of the astronaut corps and to demonstrate you know this was right at the height of the civil rights era, which was causing uh, America to have, uh, it was really uh, with the, the fire hoses and, and Birmingham and all those, that imagery which was going all over the world. Um, Kennedy felt that this would be a positive for the civil rights movement, a positive for America's image, and and uh, could could help to, to move the civil rights movement forward. So, they found this guy, Ed Dwight. He was a ace fighter pilot. He had an advanced degree in aeronautical engineering, so he totally qualified. They sent him out to Edwards Air Force Base to train with Chuck Yeager. If any of you seen the right stuff, uh, um, you know that's all all about that that uh, that time. He was he was out there. Uh, he went through the astronaut pr training program. He passed the first round, but he never he did not make it to the final cut. He was, uh, there was a lot of racism, obviously, at the time. There was a lot of resentment of him perhaps uh, uh, being, uh, there being favoritism to him because of his race. It's a fascinating story that's really not been told. It's a sort of sad story uh, in that, you know, he was selected because of his race and he was rejected because of his race. But it's another, it's another great uh, might have been in that I think we would be, again, looking at the space program of a different in a different way if he had been selected as an Apollo astronaut and had gone to the moon. I think it would have been a great thing. And um, it's really a shame that he didn't make it. And, and of course, later on, there were African-Americans selected. Yeah, and, it took 20 years. It took yeah, 20 yeah. years. Yeah. It took 20 years, and that's a long, long time. Well, Robert, <laughs> I mentioned that because they were South Carolinians. Oh, well, that's great. General Bolton. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ron McNair, McNair and Bolton, both South Carolinians. Mm -hmm. uh, all the world doesn't begin and end in South Carolina, Robert, but we think it does. So. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Um, let's move on to one of the, the tragedies uh, that really helped or changed the program, and that mm -hmm. was the Apollo fire. Yes. So um, the first tryout mission for the Apollo program was to send three astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, uh, into Earth orbit to test out the first Apollo capsule, which was the first three-man capsule. This is the capsule was designed to go 
on the mission to the moon. In uh, uh, January 27th, 1966, 1967, sorry, they were doing a full run-through on the launch pad uh, where they would seal, they sealed up the, the, the capsule and, and, and uh, filled the capsule with 100% oxygen, which was how they would, they would go up into space. And there was some short circuit in the capsule and a flash fire happened and uh, they were not able to get the, the hatch of the capsule open because it was designed to open inwards so that it wouldn't blow out in space because the, but because of the pressure of the, of, uh, the, the fire uh, caused incredible pressure inside the, the capsule, they were not able to open that hatch and they all perished. Um, it's a very tragic and dramatic scene in the movie. It almost um, derailed the entire Apollo program because when they started to investigate, they found all kinds of flaws in this capsule. They found they even found it like a a, 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 a wrench, you know, lying like a discarded wrench in the capsule. But NASA had the advantage of being a, a, an organization that was very open about their problems. And Von Braun really insisted on this, uh, where people, there was no um, penalty for coming forward and saying, hey, this is going on, this is going on. You wouldn't be, like, fired for saying that. And they were able to really fix the problem and get to the root of it and build a much better capsule that um, was just in incredibly successful, except for the, the one tragedy well, near tragedy aboard um, Apollo 13, it's uh, miraculous how successful the Apollo program was. And uh, the people I've talked to said, you know, it was if we'd gone to try to go to the moon with that first capsule, it could have been a, we could have lost somebody. It could have been a real disaster. But this was I just add this is something that the Russians did not. This is one of the failures of the Russian system, the Soviet system, is that you know if you uh, if you detected a problem, you kept it. You kept your mouth shut because you could get into trouble. And and or if you found a problem, you kept it secret because everything was kept secret uh, in Russia. Uh, they had a very just a different just a different system there and uh, different methods of doing things that was not conducive to innovation. And so that was one of the things that um, led to American success and Soviet failure. All right. We need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And right now I'm talking with Robert Stone about his documentary, Chasing the Moon. And we'll also add General Charles Duke. All right, Robert, let's talk about your creation of, of this documentary. It's six hours. How many thousands of feet of footage did you, did you view before you Oh, good. Boiled it. <laughs> just, uh, you know, curious. It's just, it's, I have no idea. It's just thousands of hours. I mean, it, we, we had just a ridiculous amount of material. It was, it was just, it was unbelievable. The story could have gone in a million different directions. Um, so the, the, the hardest thing was really just keeping, keeping focused. Uh, and one of the things that, that helped is, you know, we, we, we narrowed it to, there's about 12 people that are interviewed in the film, audio-only interviews. And so we really kind of keep the, 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 the story focused in this personal, these personal um, dramas. But so, yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges of the film was, was simply wading through all this footage and focusing the story, but also being open to taking the story in one direction or another, depending on whether we found footage or not that, that, that would be surprising. Oh, let's do that. I mean, I, when I started this project, I knew nothing about Ed Dwight. I didn't know if there was... And then when we found out about him, we found him, we interviewed him, I didn't know if there was going to be any footage of him. Uh, similarly, one of the other people we profile is Poppy Northcutt, who was the first and only uh, woman in Apollo uh, mission control. She has another, also an incredible, uh, an incredible story, and we found footage of her. Now you used the footage; you did not use the contemporary interviews, right? Well, I did audio only interviews, yeah. so you hear the voices, but you don't see people. You see them in the archival footage, but you don't. There's, you don't cut to talking heads, people sitting in their living room talking. So everything is happening. Also, it feels like it's all happening in real time. Well. It does feel that way. That's, I think that's what made the viewing experience, certainly to me, uh, so different from a lot of other documentaries. We also, you know, used uh, contemporary news accounts um, a lot, which gives you a real sense of, of the moment. Um, you know, I think one of, the, one of the most incredible discoveries and surprises um, 
for me, which came out of just looking at thousands of hours of footage, was one of the central dramas of the Apollo 11 story that's been completely forgotten. I haven't seen it written about. I haven't seen it in any movie. Uh, one of the central dramas was that um, the day before uh, Apollo 11 launched the moon, the Russians did their final sort of Hail Mary to try to beat the Americans and launched a robotic spaceship that was going to go to the moon, land on the lunar surface, and scoop up uh, soil and then return to Earth before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin could get back. And this was announced, and the entire journey to the moon, there was the Russian rocket and the American rocket. And about an hour or two after Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, the Soviet, the, the, all the news networks of the world interrupted their broadcast and said that it's just been announced that the Soviet spacecraft has landed on the moon 200 miles away from Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And everybody was like freaking out that, that uh, the Russians are going to get back here before uh, the Americans. And, and what would that mean? It was a you know, man versus machine. And uh, just after Armstrong and Aldrin left the moon and linked up with the mothership, the command module with Mike Collins, the news came out that in fact the, the, the tracking of that rocket had demonstrated that the, um, the Russian spacecraft had actually crashed, landed into the moon. It, it had failed and um, was not going to be coming back. But as this was, and because it didn't, because it didn't happen, it's kind of been erased from history. But for all of us who were watching at the time, and most of us have forgotten this, for all of us who were watching at the time, that was one of the things that left us on pins and needles. And uh, so we have that in the movie, and it's, 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 a, it's a great forgotten drama. Okay. All right, Robert, we've been discussing the Apollo program, and in its later years, a young man who grew up in Lancaster, South Carolina, Charles Duke, joined the astronaut program. And with me on the phone from his home in Texas is General Charles Duke. And so, General, welcome to the journal. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, delighted to be with you today. Well, you grew up in the South. I grew up in the South. And one thing we Southern folks always want to do is, who are you and who are your people and where did you come from? <laughs> Uh, my uh, mom and dad were both South Carolinians. Uh, uh, dad grew up in Chesterfield County, and my mom uh, grew up in uh, Edgefield County. They were married, actually, in New York uh, during the Depression. My twin brother and I were conceived and then born in Charlotte. But while we weren't living in Charlotte, that was the nearest hospital. So anyway, we uh, started World War II in, uh, in South Carolina, Moved around, but uh, after the war, settled in Lancaster, and that's where I grew up. Went uh, to two years, actually two years, Lancaster High School, but uh, to get to the Naval Academy, I had to go off to a boarding school, Admiral Farragut Academy, to get the necessary requirements to get into the Naval Academy. My twin brother lived in Lancaster till he died. I have one son now living in Greenville. And uh, so uh, we get back to the South a lot, even though we live in Texas. Well, I, I heard you say back to the South. You don't count Texas as Southern? I'm just, well, I'm sort just... of. <laughs> it's Western. Uh, it's got the same accents, y'all. You know, <laughs> East Texas is very similar to the South, where we lived for 10 years in Houston. We're in a, what's called a hill country here in Texas now, and, uh, and near San Antonio, a uh, very nice part of Texas to live, but uh, we have a uh, southern outlook most of the time. General, why did you become an astronaut? Right, you grew up in South Carolina. You went to the Naval Academy. Let's pick it up from there. Why did you become a, an astronaut? Well, uh, when I graduated from the Naval Academy, there wasn't even an astronaut program. Uh, I had uh, volunteered to go into the Air Force, which was permissible back in uh, those days, so I was sworn in as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force, and then went to flight school the summer of 1957, uh, started in September. Uh, and uh, and in October of that year, Sputnik went up. So that was, the to me, the beginning of the space age. I just wanted to be a fighter pilot when I uh, joined the Air Force. Uh, 
And uh, so I got to Germany, my first assignment, and in 1959, uh, that year, they selected the first group of astronauts. Then in 1961, I was still in Germany, and uh, Yuri Gagarin was the first human being to go up in April, then Alan Shepard in May, uh, the first American, and then Kennedy announced the Apollo program in May, late May 1961. Air Force then sent me back to school uh, in master's degree in 1962 to MIT. And there I was working on the Apollo guidance and navigation system. And up until this point, I really didn't think about being an astronaut. But I met some of the earlier astronauts and who were so enthusiastic and excited about their job that I said, how do I get that job? And they said, well, if you go to test pilot school, you got a chance. So I went to test pilot school and graduated in 1965. And in September 65, uh, NASA had another call for astronauts. So I applied right away and was selected. And we became, I began my astronaut career in April 1966. So it was sort of a stepping stone uh, path to the astronaut program. I never dreamed about it as a kid. Uh, growing up in Lancaster, it was uh, something nobody even remotely thought about, people going to the moon. Well, as you look back on your association with the program, you really first gathered national attention when you were ground control for the first landing on the moon. That was a pretty, at least from listening to it, hair-raising experience on the ground as well as what was going on in outer space. Well, it was... uh uh, we did have a lot of problems. My, uh, uh, Let me back up just a minute. There were nine missions to the moon. Uh, I was privileged to work on five of those, two of them in mission control, Apollo 10 and 11, back up on Apollo 13 and 17, and then I flew on Apollo 16, the fifth landing on the moon. So uh, as I was uh, CAPCOM, which was uh, an acronym for Capsule Communicator, the only uh, person in mission control that can actually talk to the crew in space. And so I'd done that job on Apollo 10. Uh, Neil Armstrong asked me to come over on Apollo 11. And so that's how I got to Apollo 11. Uh, And uh, our shift uh, was on duty during the uh, uh, activation checkout and the landing uh, on the moon on Apollo 11. So the voice you hear during the descent is from Mission Control is mine. Then the other voices, of course, are Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And uh, it was a very tense 12 minutes or 13 minutes uh, as we started the descent. We had started having a lot of problems, communication problems, data dropout. There were mission rules that covered that. You know, we had to get data back uh, quickly or we were had to abort then we had computer overloads, so you can imagine the tension rising in uh, mission control. Uh, then in the late stages, uh, uh, from about 7,000 feet above the moon, uh, Neil sees his landing site for the first time, and it wasn't where we thought. He was going into a big uh, area of uh, large rocks and craters, so he was not able to land, so he had to level off. Uh, that resulted in a lot of extra fuel being burned. So now we were uh, getting a minimum fuel. And as he started down from about three, 400 feet, and I called uh, Eagle 60 seconds. It meant he had 60 seconds to land. Or he would, uh, we would call an abort. Then I called Eagle 30 seconds. Uh, he still hadn't landed. But 13 seconds later, I heard uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, say, contact, engine stop. And a great relief. Uh, the tension was through the roof, of course. And uh, it was like uh, air going out of a big balloon as that tension was released. And uh, a few seconds later, a calm voice from uh, the Eagle was uh, Neil Armstrong saying, Houston, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Well, I was so excited, I couldn't even get out Tranquility. It came out twang. <laughs> uh, and 
but I corrected myself. Uh, uh, Roger, uh, tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. So it was a great relief. They were safely there. Uh, and uh, then we had to make sure the spacecraft was in good shape, No, didn't spring any leaks uh, when it hit the ground. And so eventually, uh, you know, everything calmed down in mission control, but it was very, very exciting and a, a very proud moment for all of us, and all, for the whole world, really, and us in mission control in particular. Well, I was in graduate school, but I can remember everybody gathered around a TV set to watch that happen. Well, yeah, it was uh, worldwide. Uh, I guess billions uh, watched it uh, or listened to it. The remarkable thing to me about it was the was the the quality of the uh, controllers in Mission Control. I was probably at thirty three. I was probably the second oldest in Mission Control. Uh, everybody else was uh, thirty or younger, uh, but very very qualified. And uh, Gene Krantz was, I think, the oldest guy, and he was. Uh, uh, in his mid-30s at the time. He was the flight director. So we all became good friends, and, uh, in fact, we're having a reunion in July in Houston, um, and uh, those that are still left alive. Mr. Stone? Yes. You and your mother were watching the landing as well, right? Yeah. um, We were living in England at the time, so it happened, uh, I think it happened about 11 o'clock in the evening, uh, the the landing and the and the and the actual moonwalk, like maybe a little later than that. I remember the moonwalk happened about four o'clock in the morning because my mom had to wake me up in the middle of the night. I was ten years old, and uh, we had a little black and white television set that was on a it was on a chest of drawers in front of a window, and I'll never forget watching Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin bouncing around on the moon. And I looked out the window, and there was the moon rising up in the sky. And it looked, it to me, it was like the television had become some sort of giant telescope or something. And yeah, it blew my mind. <laughs> One of the reasons I probably ended up making this film. It was just an unforgettable experience. But you know, for it was for everybody all over the world who was watching this. It was about a billion people watching. General Duke, the rest of your experience with the program. At one point, you caught the measles, and you had. Mission was changed. Um, well, it, that yeah, there was. A, I caught the measles from my uh, three-year-old and his little buddy, uh, and uh, the mission went off as planned, but not with the same crew. The uh, crew was uh, to be have Lovell, uh, Mattingly, and Hayes, but I exposed Mattingly to the measles, and he'd never had the measles, so they wouldn't let him go. And they changed out uh, Mattingly with the guy I had trained with, Jack Swikert. And Jack Swikert then uh, lifted off on schedule on Apollo uh, 13. But then, of course, 55 hours later on the way to the moon, they had this enormous explosion uh, on board as the uh, oxygen, one of the oxygen tanks blew up. So we were crippled, uh, dead in the water, basically, in the command module, but we still had to lunar module and uh, so we got them back safely but another uh dramatic uh, moment in mission control for 99 hours till they splash down general let's let's move on to apollo 16 you're going to be the pilot on this right yeah my job was uh, called lunar module pilot it's actually like the right seater in an airplane. Uh, uh, the captain on the left seat is the commander, as John Young. That was John Young. I was the uh, sort of the co-pilot, but they called me the lunar module pilot. We both could fly uh, the machine, uh, but my job during the descent and landing was basically talking John down and making sure the systems all work right uh, while he uh, focused on picking a landing site. I love the place, the name of the place where you landed, the Descartes Highlands, so at least we've got a historical scientific figure in there. And you were outside the, the module three times, right? That's correct. Uh, we were on the surface almost 72 hours, and uh, our total excursions, uh, there were three excursions outside, uh, and the longest was uh, seven hours uh, plus, uh, total was over 20 hours outside. 
It was exciting. We didn't want to come back. We were having so much fun. And you left a souvenir on the moon, right? Uh, left a several, actually. Uh, the one that's uh, uh, drawn the most interest is the picture of my family. I decided that it would be nice to take a family photo to the moon. I got permission to do this, and we had this photo taken in the backyard of our home in El Lago, Texas. And uh, and uh, so the boys were, one was just turned seven, the other was almost five. And so I dropped that photograph on the moon, and on the back of the picture, we had written, uh, this is the family of astronaut Charlie Duke from planet Earth who landed on the moon in April 1972, and we all signed it. So picture's still there, unrecognizable now after 47 years, but uh, still there. <laughs> all right, and you retired from NASA in 75. What have you done since then? Well, a variety of things. Uh, we moved to the San Antonio area where uh, I opened a business uh, for two years, and at the same time was finishing my Air Force commitment uh, as a reserve officer at uh, Randolph Air Force Base uh, near San Antonio. And after two years, I realized that uh, I was enjoying my Air Force career part-time rather than than my business. So I sold the business and uh, uh, continued with my Air Force career until 1986. Uh, And so mostly job-wise, I was doing that. But uh, then... uh, uh, my wife, Dottie, and I uh, started a Christian ministry in uh, 1978, and uh, we've been involved in that ever since. Uh, it was, you know, part-time, uh, but uh, we share our faith all over the world. So that's been a, a, a real blessing for us and for our family. Robert Stone, let's talk about the last years of the Apollo program and how you included that and worked with that in your documentary. Uh, well, we skipped over Apollo 13 because I, I felt that that was um, uh, a unique story in and of itself that's been well covered and people know much about. The last the last um, two-hour episode of the series really does focus on um, Apollo 11 as the kind of the main event, the culmination of the, uh, the race to the moon with a sort of a coda that deals with some of the later missions and, you know, talking about how... Uh, you know, the public really lost interest after the first mission, and it was difficult for NASA to keep public support for the program going forward. In fact, the last three they were going there was go, they were going to go up to um, Apollo twenty, and the last three missions were um, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty were canceled because it just wasn't there wasn't the public support to to keep the thing going. However, one of the interesting things that came out of that when the Apollo um, program closed down is all of the technicians and engineers who'd been involved in this, um, you know, they packed their bags and took jobs all over the country and, um, and they stayed in touch. And these people became sort of the backbone of the technological revolution that has uh, taken many of the um, technological advances from Apollo and and given us things like you know iPhones and laptop computers and you know keep in mind one of the t- greatest technological challenges in the Apollo program beyond you know simply building a rocket and uh, I shouldn't say the word simply but building a rocket and doing all the incredible things that that uh, General Duke did was uh, we, everything had to be miniaturized you know television cameras were you know huge in those days that had to be miniaturized computers needed to be miniaturized everything needed to be miniaturized and that that technological challenge spilled over into consumer products in the 1970s 80s and you know we're living we're, we're living with that legacy today so i, th- I think that's that's one of the great legacies of Apollo, and I, and the and the other great legacy I I think you know for the space program in general is the global communications, the global communications network, um, which has transformed all of our lives. All right, gentlemen, Alfred has given me the wind up sign. So, General Duke, any last words before we sign off today? Uh, it was a great program to be involved with. I was very honored uh, to have been selected and to represent South Carolina. Thank you for the opportunity to be a part of your program, and I wish you well. God bless you all. Thank you. And Robert Stone? 
Yeah, thanks. I, uh, General Duke, I hope you get a chance to see the, see the uh, series when it airs in, uh, on PBS in July. Oh, looking forward to it. Robert Stone and General Charles Duke, thank you both for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I had the pleasure of previewing the documentary, which will air on South Carolina ETV. Robert Stone's done an incredible job of piecing together decades of film history, and the way it is presented, you are there. There's no talking head. And then to have the opportunity to speak with General Charles Duke, about his experience as an astronaut, one of the men who walked on the moon, a man who grew up here in South Carolina and attended Lancaster High School. So once again, we have an American story, the race to the moon, but we have a South Carolina connection. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.